0: Hello again, everyone, and welcome to the front line with Joe and Joe, Joe Basillo and Joe Resinello. And once more, dear friends, let us go into the breach. And we're very pleased and honored to be joined today by Dr. E. Michael Jones. And I wouldn't imagine that many people in our audience wouldn't know who Dr. Jones is, but just in case, uh, I just want to give Dr. Jones a brief introduction. Uh, early in his career, uh, Dr. Jones accepted a position as an assistant professor of American literature at St. Mary's College, obviously a Catholic institution in South Bend, Indiana. One year later, Dr. Jones was fired because of his position on abortion. Dr. Jones happens to be pro-life. So he decided to abandon academia and started a magazine instead, uh, initially known as Fidelity. It is now Culture Wars Magazine. I, by the way, subscribe to it myself, and I would recommend everyone subscribe to Culture Wars. It's a fantastic magazine, especially if you wanna keep abreast of what's going on. And that magazine uh, also set out to explore the disarray in the Catholic Church that led to his firing. Uh, Dr. Jones has spent the last 40 years as a prolific writer, having, having written numerous books, including uh, Slaughter of Cities, Libido Dominandi, uh, The Jewish Revolutionary Spirit and its Impact on World History, and the book that we're gonna be discussing today, Logos Rising, A History of Ultimate Reality. And, uh, and Dr. Jones, thank you for joining us on the front line with Joe and Joe.
1: You're welcome. Good to be here.
0: Joe, I'm going to kick it over to you and we'll get started with a prayer and then we'll jump right into it.
2: Uh, Dr. Jones, again, welcome. As is our custom, we always begin with prayer because all good things uh, begin with prayer. And this is obviously a very good thing. Uh, In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. amen. Amen. Remember, O most gracious Virgin Mary, never was it known that anyone who sought your help or sought your intercession was left unaided, inspired by this confidence. We find to you a virgin, a virgin's our mother. To you we come, before you we stand, sinful and sorrowful. O mother of the word incarnate, despise not our petitions, but in your clemency, hear and answer us, amen name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. So Dr. Jones, I think a good place to start is um, obviously in the very beginning uh, of your book. Uh, as Joe said, we're going to be discussing Logos Rising, a history of ultimate reality. In that in that book, you start off demolishing uh, the arguments of atheists, particularly the four horsemen. And I'm not talking about the four horsemen of Notre Dame. I'm talking about Dawkins, Harris, Denton, and Hitchens. And um, Please explain the incoherence of the atheist argument from a philosophical point of view, and talk to us a little bit about this idea that you put forth, turtles all the way down.
1: Yes, well, uh, to to get back to the philosophical tradition, one of the greatest uh, advances in human thought, in Logos, in human history came with Parmenides, who uh, basically said that that which is cannot come from that which is not. So what what these four atheists have in common is that they're all Darwinists. They all believe in evolution and an evolution that is so radical, which says that basically that which is can come from that which is not. Now, that's uh, as soon as you state it in those terms, you realize that's impossible. So they have to couch it in terms that make it plausible. And this is where Richard Dawkins comes in and he talks, he creates this fiction called Mount Improbable. Okay. And he says, yeah, it it is impossible to go from that which is not to that which is. But that's only if you look at one side, the steep side of Mount Improbable, where you have to jump all the way from the bottom to all the way to the top. If you go to the other side, it's a very gradual slope and you can make one small step after another and you get to the top. Uh, problem solved? Well, no. Wait a minute. Not not so fast, uh, Professor Dawkins, because in each of those small steps, you're doing the same thing. You're going from that which is not to that it that which is. And he's he's too blinded by his own ideology to understand the contradiction in his in his argument. So then he says, well, let's let's talk about a wing, for example. Suppose a bird has. of a wing. Well, that's good, isn't it? Isn't that better than no percent of a wing, than no wing at all? Uh, Because if the bird fell out of the tree, he'd he'd land 50% softer than, than otherwise. Well, wait a minute, professor. You already begged the question here. You're already talking about a wing. If you're talking about a wing, you're talking about something that enables flight. Well, then you've already got to where you need to go. You have to go from a state where there is no flight to flight. If you're talking about a wing, you're always talking about flight. Same thing Christopher Hitchens, uh, yeah, Christopher Hitchens does the same thing, but with the eye. Well, either you can see or you cannot see. Well, how do you get from the fact that you cannot see to where you can see? Well, he says there are light sensitive cells on these primitive organisms. No evidence for this, but he says that's what there are. Well either those light-sensitive cells can see or they cannot see. If they can see, it's already an eye. If they cannot see, you're never going to be able to get there. This is the, the metaphysical problem at the heart of Darwinism. And it can be solved by going... That's why I'm writing Logos Rising, to go back to the metaphysical principles that shows this is impossible. And that was already, as I said, stated by Heraclitus a long time ago. Not Heraclitus, by Parmenides a long time ago.
2: Dr. Jones, I just want to say, you said something I think that's very important. He was blinded by his own ideology. I mean Joe and I are involved in the culture war. We have our our radio show on the Crusade Channel, always on air and always online. We have we're very active in social media. And we we come across very intelligent people. When I say intelligent, they're very learned. They have degrees, all types of degrees, but they're blinded by their own ideology. You see, I think sometimes when people hear the word God, immediately something comes up. Also, I think people are blinded by sin. They don't see clearly. Could you talk a little bit about that? Because sometimes I feel like we're talking to the wall. The, the, uh, the arguments are so clear. They're so linear. And I want to convey a story, and I think you could probably relate to it. Um, I used to uh, work with the missionaries of charity, and I knew this professor of philosophy, Lawrence Abello. Um, he formed many of the sisters. He was a brilliant man. He was a philosopher and a physicist. And I went to one of his talks with uh, a gentleman from Spain who was an engineer, much smarter than I am, I'll be the first to say. So we went to the the conversation and Abello would approach God through the argument of not mentioning God, proving his existence from a philosophical point of view. I thought it was a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant discussion. Afterwards, I went to to lunch with this gentleman who was an engineer. I was like, Emilio, wasn't that brilliant? This is someone clearly who could understand what he was saying. He said, I don't agree with the math. Immediately blocks it out. Could you talk about that? How do we get through to these people?
1: First of all, you have, to, you have to explain to them that the existence of God does not depend on faith. The existence of God can be proven by reason, okay? They invariably talk about some type of leap of faith. That is not the case with the existence of God, okay? You can prove the existence of God, and it goes back to that, what you said about the, the turtles all the way down argument, which is the opposite, okay? So, I was, uh, uh, the turtles all the way down argument comes from India where the uh, universe is, or the Earth is a semicircle on the back of of four elephants, and the four elephants are standing on the turtle. And the next question is, well, what's the turtle standing on? Mm -hmm. Well, uh, the answer, if you look it up on Wikipedia, is it's turtles all the way way down. down. (laughs) Well, that doesn't make any sense. And Aristotle was the man who proved that you cannot have an infinite regress. So to give uh, uh, Mr. Fazer's uh, ex- explanation of this, you can have a, a, a train on the track and the train is moving and you can ask, uh, there's a boxcar there. Why is that boxcar moving? Well, because uh, the boxcar in front of it is moving. Well, why is that boxcar moving? Well, because the boxcar in front of that is moving. So. You can have an infinite number. Uh, you can have uh, box cars. The explanation is the box. Well, box cars can't move on their own. The reason that the train is moving is because there's an engine that is pulling it. That is the equivalent of the uncaused cause and the unmoved mover. You can take it the opposite way. That's motion, but you can also argue from the absence of motion. Uh, if you're going to build a bridge, you have to create a, 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 an open space there where you pump out the water and then you'll find mud and then you have to go through the mud to find something that will not move bedrock whatever you want to call it at that point you can start laying the foundation if you don't get to bedrock you can have an infinite amount of cement or stone or whatever it is and the bridge won't stand up you have to have some endpoint to this regress and that endpoint is what all men call god okay I I gave this argument in in India when a boy, a 16-year-old boy in an English class, asked me if I could prove the existence of God. I said, yes, I can. I said, nothing can come from nothing. We're back to Parmenides now. There is something. Therefore, there was never nothing. This something could not bring itself into existence. Because in order to do that, it would have to exist before it existed. That's impossible. So therefore, something else had to bring it into existence, and that thing is called God. Well, that's, that's the proof. So now what this means here, from a practical point of view, when you're dealing with the four horsemen here, is that atheism has nothing to do with ontology. It's a psychological problem okay because God is an exalted father and you got your idea of of God from your father and if you have a bad relationship with your father you're going to have difficulty understanding what God is which is an all-powerful being who is also a good being okay and this is precise this becomes really interesting when you get to the Hitchens family because there's a brother of Christopher Hitchens and his name is Peter Hitchens And uh, they both had the same father. And that father was a a naval hero who got demobbed after World War II and ended up a life as a kind of insignificant accountant. So depending on who you are, depending actually on your moral state or something inexplicable, you're going to choose one or the other. You're going to choose the, the naval hero, which is what Peter Hitchens did, or you're going to choose the insignificant accountant, which was Christopher Hitchens did. But we're talking about psychological issues, and that's where you have to take the discussion. If a person asserts this kind of blind allegiance to this atheistic
0: ideology, I think a lot of times, Doctor Jones, it, it, I hate to say it like this, but they, but they they do try to be very slick. I mean, and 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 thank God their their star has fallen in the last couple of years. You really don't hear much about them anymore. But I remember fifteen, fifteen, eighteen years ago, they were all the rage, and and even. Uh, uh, a non-academic like me, a non-intellectual, when, Christa, when Richard Dawkins, let's say, says, well, we don't need metaphysics. Well, even I know that that's not true. In other words, they make slick arguments. Well, we have physics, Any, we don't need metaphysics, and they right. make anyone, arguments like that. Anyone who says that is making a metaphysical argument. Right, right. <laughs> and, and it's like I said, it's, it's the blindness of the ideology. Um, so let me, uh, let me ask you this. The book is Logos Rising. Okay, so obviously in Greek philosophy, there was a number of attempts going back, let's say, five, six, seven hundred years before Christ to find or to come up with ideas or theories for ultimate reality. Talk about those those different ideas going on in the Greek philosophical world and then bring it to uh, how that eventually led to Logos and and answer the question for our audience. What is Logos?
1: Logos is the uh, word for speech or word the, the, the I, de- I didn't understand how impoverished English was until I started to study Greek and I opened up the Greek dictionary and found that there are column after column, page after page of English equivalents for Logos. Uh, and basically, every word that ends in ology is some type of cognate of the word uh, Logos. So it's reason, it's speech, it's order, and so on and so forth. It is the ultimate reality. So in the beginning, there was, a, there was a collapse of civilization that took place from around 1200 BC to 800 BC in the, in the uh, Aegean, in that area. And as they gradually came back, there were two, two things that came about. It was Hesiod uh, who wrote a kind of a natural history, uh, a, a kind of mythology a history, a mythological history. Uh, and there was uh, Homer, who wrote the kind of definitive position on mythology, which talked about gods and and every every language has a sense of a word for God the Father. It was Deus Pater Peter in in uh, the uh, Indo-European, uh, Zeus Pater in Greek, and Jupiter in in uh, Latin. They all had this sense and they took it down a blind alley when they started talking about, well, if he's he's God, he must have a beard. If he's a father, he must have a beard and blah, blah, blah. And then you end up with mythology. And there were people who were unhappy with that and they were known as the Physiologoi, we call them physicists. And they decided maybe we can deduce something from the looking at the material world. And so the first guy to do this around the same time was Thales, uh, Thales of Miletus, which was a colony on Asia Minor. And at that point, uh, they, they they were handicapped by the fact that they were using material things as the explanation for something that is not material. And so they were impoverished, but they saw there was some type of... What they did see was that there was some type of unity here. There is some type of order here. It's based on some type of unity. And then they tried to see it in the physical world, and you can't find it in the physical world. So then it was... Uh, air, and Hexagoras said it was air, which, you know, we're surrounded by air, you need air to breathe, we need water, that makes sense, but it's still a physical thing. And then Heraclitus, who was also in that area, Ionia, which is where all this happened, which is the the western coast of Asia Minor, which was then the Persian Empire, he said fire, and it was probably influenced by uh, Zoroastrianism, which worships fire, but he also said logos, and at this point, he's trying to say uh, he was in many ways he's the opposite of, of Parmenides, who said that nothing changes. He may have we don't know whether he became came before or after Parmenides, but he was talking about the other reality that we know, which is motion. Okay, there is motion. It seems contradictory, but if you look at the flame or a river. You can see a kind of tension here between constant motion and something that's always the same. In other words, the flame is constantly in motion, but you can always, you can look at it. If it's a candle, you can see it's got three parts. It's always the same, same thing with the river. The river is always changing and it's always the same. And that began, that you created this idea of this tension and, and Logos became the expression of that. Okay, now that was a great breakthrough And people started talking about logos, but at this point, uh, they couldn't go any farther because they didn't have any instruments. So they didn't have the telescope, they didn't have the microscope. So we'd have to wait 2,000 years now until those things were perfected before we could start looking at the natural world in a more sophisticated fashion. And so the, the idea shifted then to Greek philosophy shifted to. The sophists, they took over Greek philosophy because they could provide you with a positive outcome. They could win a lawsuit for you and you get lots of money for suing somebody. And that was a good idea. And it's still a good idea. There are still sophists out there. You know, they're known as lawyers now, (laughs) Uh, but uh, not the bad mouth lawyers or anything. Uh, But uh, uh, then uh, 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 the only principle they had was we're going to win the case. And at this point, that's insufficient because we have concepts like justice. So maybe, maybe you lost the case, but maybe you were right. And maybe it was just a fluke that you lost the case. And some, so someone like Socrates brings this up and the sophistic sophisticated answer is, well, justice is the opinion of the powerful. Now, if, if things had stayed like that, we wouldn't be here today talking about this because you can't, that's a roadblock. That's what the rich and powerful say today. Justice is the opinion of the powerful. So if you're not rich and powerful, just shut up. That's what the oligarchs are telling us right now. That's the, the issue that we're fighting right now, the oligarchic takeover of our culture, using uh, uh, thugs like Black Lives Matter and Antifa to enforce their rules upon us you know, by terror. And that's not the end of the story. Socrates obviously ran into trouble when he talked about this. He, they killed him. Uh, but the idea moved forward in his student Plato and, and his student Aristotle. And they, they, they created like a miracle. It's called the Greek miracle, where basically they came up with an understanding of ultimate reality that was, that was worth preserving. And, and the word that was worth preserving was logos and the man who preserved it was St. John, who was living in Ephesus, which is where Heraclitus was from 500 years before, and he's confronted with the fact that Paul just got expelled from the synagogues. He can't talk to synagogues anymore. We're gonna have to talk to the Greeks. And so Paul went over to Greece, he spoke to the Areopagus, he went from Ephesus, which is a city run by idol worshipers, silversmiths who made idols to Diana, and he took the Ephesus speech to Athens and he gave the wrong speech. He gave it to a bunch of philosophers and he talked about idol worship and they were insulted, I think, by the fact that he considers them idol worshipers. And then he said, basically, you know, this man, he died, he rose from the dead. At that point they said, wait a minute, wait, We'll, we'll talk about this some other time. And they all walked out. And I think John was aware of that. I think John was aware of that failure. And I think he wrote the gospel with that in mind because we're talking to a new group of people now. We're talking to Greeks. We're writing in their language. We're not talking to Hebrews anymore. We're talking to a group of people who don't understand the genealogy. They will never understand the genealogy at the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew. We have to have a new way. He begins with metaphysics. The first three sentences of the Gospel of St. John are metaphysics because he wants to reach Greeks. And you reach Greeks by talking about Logos, and that's what he said. In the beginning, there was Logos, and Logos was with God, and Logos is God. And at that point, you have a whole new foundation. He's united the Hebrew and the Greek traditions. We have a new religion called Christianity, and now we can move forward if on one condition if we resolve the contradiction between those last two sentences. How can God be with God? and God? How can Logos be with God and God? And the answer to that is the Trinity, but that's a story. It took 300 years to resolve that issue.
2: Dr. Dr. Jones, I I mean, I I just want to say just real quickly, when I hear Logos, again, I'm not an academic. I think of truth. I think Christ is the truth. He's not the custom. The idea of absolute truth has been thrown out of our society, and we're clearly living in a dictatorship of relativism. How has this idea that was basically embraced by the Greeks led to lead to the conversion of Europe, basically a bunch of pagans? Um, how had that idea? How did it translate to Europe? Now you mean logos
1: or truth uh, logos logos yeah well, uh, first of all, they as I said. The, the Christians spent 300 years trying to figure out the relationship between two terms in the uh, Gospel of St. John. Uh, the two terms are logos, which we've already mentioned, and son. So Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He's the Son of God the Father. What does, what does that mean? Again, we're we coming perilously close to the same problem we had with homer when we said that god is a father okay it depends how literal can you take this how how much less? so that what we do know is, is if the son if jesus christ is the son he's not a creature uh you are you were not created by your father you were procreated by your father okay that's a big difference That means you're on the same level as your father if if you if you write a book you create that book you're the creator and that book is not on the same level as you. So this is, that's obvious, that's something we have to come to. But then uh, the Greek, this is all a Greek debate, by the way. If we didn't have the Greek language, we would not have the debate about the Trinity. The Latin fathers were simply excluded from this debate. It was purely a debate among the Greek fathers. So the first man to try and come to this logically, it seemed, was Arius. Uh, the father of Arianism, the the heresy, and he said, well, if this, this father precedes the son, therefore, there was a time when the son was not. If there was a time when the son was not, then he's a creature because he came into being. He's not eternal. And so, therefore, the son is not equal to God. Well, that sounds logical if we take that analogy too far, because there's, it can only go so far. We're talking about human language, even a human language as sophisticated as the Greeks cannot deal with a concept that has to be accepted as revelation. Because we, we know that uh, God exists by reason, but we don't know that these three persons in one God that's way beyond human reason. We have to accept that as revelation. We got that from St. John. We have to work that out, and that's precisely the relationship between revelation, which is theology, and philosophy. The church needed Greek philosophy to have that debate. They needed the Greek language to have that debate, and they eventually came up with a Greek term. Uh, The Council of Nicaea said homoousion, one in being with the Father, Jesus Christ is one in being with the Father, and that allowed it, it, there was there was immediate pushback, and so another group of the Arians came back and say no, it, it's homoousion. Now that's a one-letter difference in a Greek word that completely mystified the Latin fathers who didn't speak Greek. We're talking about how sophisticated this debate was, how bounded, up, how how much it was bound up with the Greek language, and how necessary philosophy is to to, as an aid to revelation to understand revelation now if you didn't get that right your culture did not move forward it's that simple it's that simple
0: dr jones see what happened along those lines okay you say that uh after st john bringing bringing the hebrew uh the hebrew scriptures and greek philosophy together you say okay it enables the, it enables Uh, forward progress, because now there's, you know, there's an understanding, as you said, of the, or maybe not an understanding, but a statement that, of the Trinity. You mentioned Arius. A little further down the road, you get to Nestorius, okay? So I want to talk about this a little bit. Islam seems to have, after its founding, dropped off also, okay? They were unable to proceed forward at some point because of their concept. Of God, which differs from the Trinity, okay, and in other ways also, but essentially differs from the Trinity where God they are monotheist, but it's one person. Explain for our audience, please, um, what, what is Nestorianism and how does that factor into Islam and what and what's and what's the problem there for Islam? Well, Nestorius the said there
1: were two natures to God, he was both, he had two separate natures. Well, that, that's contradictory, That that, that uh, is similar to Arianism, a little bit different, but it's the same, the same type of issue. Now the problem at this part of the world uh, goes all the way back to St. Augustine uh, and the fall of Rome. St. Augustine uh, was in Northern Africa as the Vandals were marching toward his city at that time. And uh, he was dying. And he basically put the, his last manuscript on the last ship uh, out of North Africa and it headed to Rome. And at that point, the vandals came in, he died, and that was the end of Catholicism. That was the end of Catholicism in Northern Africa and to a large extent throughout the East. The East was weakened by heresy. Uh, the her- rem- Remnants of heresy remained throughout that area, including Nestorianism, which was basically the only Christianity that people in Persia knew really the only Christianity they understood, and all this was a fortiori true of the Arabian Peninsula, which was uh, isolated territory. I mean, the the the, the center of uh, the Arabian Peninsula is just a, a very hostile environment. It's desert, there is civilization along the coast of the Red Sea, that's called the Hejaz. Uh, the Bible had been translated into Syriac, uh, and it was being read in Syriac. Syriac is not the same as Arabic, Arabic at that point, uh, maybe I have to check here. I don't think it was a written language at that point, but it, 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 whatever it was, whatever it was, uh, they they did not, they did not, there was no translation of the Bible into Arabic. And so they had to get it from hearsay and they got it garbled. It's just a garbled sense of what's going on and things, you, you, con, con, sophisticated concepts like logos do not exist in the language of uh, Arabic. They don't exist. And so therefore they could not process this in a way. This is also true of the Persian empire where the Nestorians were also strong. That was the headquarters of Nestorianism because it got driven out of the, of the West and it settled in places like Persia where they had an imperfect understanding of Christianity, which meant that when Islam arrived, it rose out of this environment. It energized the Arabic nation. So the Quran is to, Arabic what El Cid was to Spain, what uh, the Song of Roland was to France, what the, the Nebo lumenlied was to the Germans, what the uh, Aeneid was to the Romans. It's a national epic and it energized them and it turned them into a very powerful conquering army and they swept through all of that part that was already weakened by heresy and took it over and basically said, we got a simpler version, forget this three stuff, there's one God, and you submit to God, and that's it. So it's a kind of radically simplified version that appealed to the people because they didn't have a clear understanding of the Trinity because they were all heretics. Mm. This was true of Persia, and then it came to a military conquest of Persia. A fluke, if you want to talk about that, because Persia was a high culture. The, the three magi were Persians, they were astronomers, they were sophisticated people, and they were conquered by a bunch of camel jockeys and goat herders, because they had a superior army. It's that simple. It wasn't a superior culture, it was a superior army, and what happened was a kind of tragedy for Persia, uh, which has been memorialized in Fedosi's, one of the great poet, uh, Persian poets, in his poem, The Shahnameh. And as a result, they couldn't it's like the man you met uh the the who couldn't really comprehend that metaphysical argument they couldn't comprehend it okay so they had all of the tools all of the ability they had aristotle these persians who had now had to be muslims uh great uh thinkers but they had to work with an insufficient vocabulary because they had the quran imposed upon them and the result was As I said at this moment, it should, science should have developed there, but it didn't. And it didn't because they didn't have an adequate understanding of secondary causality, okay? And that comes from the incarnation. So if Jesus Christ is the Logos incarnate, that means Logos is incarnate, and that means if you look at the universe, you can discover Logos. Well, that's pretty much what the physiologoi were saying, but now suddenly you had developments in uh, astronomy you had developments in instruments and suddenly you realize hey we really can study this and they could have but they couldn't process it it was like it, per- persia was uh, under conquest was like a very powerful engine in a car with no transmission
0: dr uh, jones i dr. want to just very uh, just very quickly you're joining us at the front line with joe and joe joe pasillo and joe Rasinello. We're joined today with a a great conversation uh, by Dr. E. Michael Jones. We encourage everyone to uh, buy his book, Logos Rising. You can get that at drjonesfidelitypress.org. Also subscribe to his magazine at culturewars.com. Follow Joe and I on uh, Facebook and YouTube at the Frontline with Joe and Joe. Dr. Jones, I just want, Joe, I'm going to kick it over to you in a second, because I know you want to fast forward to Martin Luther. But Dr. Jones, one uh, other quick question uh, just on Islam real quick. Averroes. And Aristotle. Uh, You describe in the book how there is a um, two divergent uh, views that could not come together and uh, Aquinas, um, again I'm not a philosophy major Dr. Jones, but Aquinas kind of resolved the problem. What was the problem with Averroes and, uh, and Aristotle and how did Aquinas solve that problem and then we'll move forward to later on.
1: Okay Averroes was in that position we just talked about. So he's got Aristotle, Texts of Aristotle, Aristotle said the world was eternal. He had no idea of creation, which may, you may have to have by reading Genesis. He obviously couldn't read Genesis, no idea of creation, so the world's eternal. Well, you're reading the Quran, which is based on Genesis, and the Quran says the world had a beginning. Well, how do you resolve those, those issues? Well, now, there are some people who say Averroes was not an Averroist, but there were Averroists in Paris in the 13th century, at the time of Thomas Aquinas, and one of them was known as uh, C.J. of Brabant, who was a uh, philosophy professor, and he said basically, "Look, my job here—I'm—you know—I—my job is to teach philosophy. I'm not here to teach theology, uh, and this is what Aristotle said, and that's as far as it goes." And uh, I, as far as I'm concerned, I'm a Catholic, so I have to say that uh, Genesis is right. Yes, it's true, but it's true for theology, but Aristotle is true for philosophy. So you come up with two truths. Well, this is the only time uh, Aquinas ever got angry, and he called C.J. Brabant a stultus, which we would say an idiot or a stupid person. And he wrote a little book called De Eternitate Mundi, the contra murmurantes, the eternity of the world uh, against the murmurers, in which he said, look, even if the world were eternal, it had to come into being. Well, this is a really sophisticated distinction, and it was beyond even Aristotle. But it's true. Even if it came into, even if it were eternal, it had to come into being. And so therefore, it doesn't matter. It, you can, this this resolves th- that problem that that uh, Averroes could not resolve, and this paves the way for the development of science uh, in the Western world.
0: I wish people would understand that too, Dr. Jones, is that yes, you know when when, when they always want to try to create this, especially like we mentioned earlier in the conversation, the atheists are always trying to you know uh, create this 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 false tension or contradiction between you know uh, religion and science. And it just gets to be a little annoying, especially since, like you said, science not you know was was birthed by the Catholic Church, in other words, was it, it came to full flower under the under the Catholic Church, and then you know obviously the atheists take that, and they all of a sudden make it seem like well you, you can't believe in God or you can't believe in Jesus Christ and believe in science at the same time, so quite frankly, it gets thoroughly annoying. But I know Joe wanted to move forward
2: uh Dr. Jones, let's talk a little bit about Martin Luther um. Basically, what's the problem with his theology, and why did he have such a disdain for reason? I'd also like to discuss a little bit about his doctrine of the enslaved will.
1: Okay, well, to go to Luther, we have to go back to Aquinas. Uh, the, that synthesis that I just described to you uh, collapsed, basically, uh, under, uh, about uh, less than a, a century after he died. Uh, it collapsed into its two component parts, which was basically faith or reason. Aquinas felt that faith and reason were compatible, but at a certain point, everybody got tired of scholasticism because there was just too much deductive reasoning from too little empirical basis. That was the problem with scholasticism, and so there was a natural inclination to want to explore the external world. Now, it could have ended up happily because that's exactly what Aquinas' mentor, Albertus Magnus of Cologne, that's exactly what he was doing. He was the beginning of science in the modern world. Uh, Stanley Yockey said that science began in 1277 when Bishop Etienne of, uh, of, uh, of Paris condemned uh, of heroism because now you had a unified view of the world. It wasn't either or, it wasn't separate but equal, and therefore we're just going to have a truce and not talk about it. But without, after Aquinas' death, within 100 years, it fell apart again, and it did become faith or reason. And what you had was science developing along a kind of separate path, and faith simply eliminating Logos from the discussion and focusing on Private devotion, uh, the, via, the via moderna, uh, the imitation of Christ. This is all 14th century uh, examples of, let's just talk about private devotion. And William of Ockham was the man who, it's called nominalism, but it allowed that separation because he said, well, we don't know what's in the mind of God. Who can know the mind? Well, wait a minute. Aquinas would have said, well, wait a minute. This is blasphemy if you say there's no order in the mind of God. That's blasphemy. And, but Aquinas wasn't around anymore. So the man who grew up in this school of nominalism was Martin Luther. Uh, he was a German. The German. Nominalism had taken over all of the German universities. And then Martin Luther arrives at a time when there's conflict. I mean, serious conflict in the Catholic Church. A kind of decadence in Rome. There was a Medici, uh, the the son of uh, Lorenzo the Magnificent, is on. He's Pope Leo the Tenth. He's on the throne of Peter, and uh, they're they're trying to raise money, and they've got the indulgence thing. And money is draining out of Germany. The gold is draining out of Germany into Rome, and these are German patriots who are outraged at this, and there's this animosity, but. I think the crucial factor in Martin Luther's life is Martin Luther's life. This was a a man who had trouble controlling his passions. Okay. Now we all have trouble controlling our passions, but the difference between most of us and someone like Martin Luther is that we don't make an ideology out of our inability to control our passions. And that's precisely what Martin Luther did. So he breaks with the church, He's a a pawn of the aristocrats. The Reformation is a looting operation. That's all it is. If it weren't for aristocrats who were lusting after church property, there would be no Reformation. In England, there was no theological justification whatsoever for the Reformation. Germany was a little different because they found this monk called Martin Luther, and Martin Luther had difficulty controlling his passions. Everybody was talking about it, he drinks too much, he plays the guitar, he's a kind of rock star, he flirts with women, he's overweight, and he's a very angry guy, he's angry all the time. And so at a certain point, the tension gets too much and he snaps. Now what what the, the reformers were doing at this point was they were engaged in women's liberation, what this meant was that these thugs would break into a convent and drag the nuns out and then uh, either take the nuns themselves as concubines or would offer the best-looking nuns to people like the Archbishop of Mainz. There is a letter where Luther does exactly this, offers one of the nuns to the Archbishop of Mainz. Well that makes him, I I hope I don't offend anyone, but that makes him a pimp I think. I hope the sounds that way. Sounds that way. I I don't. I don't want to offend the pimps out there, but I think this is what, (laughs) this is what Martin Luther was doing. And so, if he's a pimp, why isn't he uh, enjoying the benefits of his pimping? And at a certain point, he snapped, and he 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 took uh, Katharina von Bora, a nun, uh, as his wife. He married her. Okay. Now, in doing that, you broke your vows, and she broke her vows. She's a nun. You're a priest. You broke your vows. You made a promise of celibacy, and now you broke it. So, what are you going to do about that? Well, he's going to come up with the doctrine of the enslaved will, which came out shortly after he uh, married Catalina von Bora. Uh, And this, what he's saying is that uh, basically, we are back. Now we're back to Islam again. We have no free will. Or your idea of free will is an illusion. It's simply God's power working through you and God is responsible for evil. Well, wait a minute, that's, that's a that's if there's ever a blasphemy, that's blasphemy. And that's precisely what, what Luther did. And that is the legacy of Luther all the way up to the present, all the way up to the present. And uh, the uh, especially important stop along the way was Hegel. But that's, we can talk about that later. Yeah, Dr. Jones,
0: Joe, real quick, I'm going to kick it over to you. But uh, Dr. Jones, I will say this, Joe and I in our travels, we say all the time, yes, we talk about politics and culture on our podcast and everything else. But our goal is evangelization. Uh, Ultimately, we want people to convert and come into the Catholic Church or revert. But I will tell you this. I've been following you now for, let me say, three years, okay? Me personally, I know Joe has for a little, uh, for a while also. That, what you just said, resonates with people. When I say to someone, in conversation and respectfully, that if you fall into, let's say, for argument's sake, sexual liberation, if you let that control your reason, if you let your passions control your reason, and you try to explain to, to, to someone rationally, does your reason control your passions or do your, rations, do your passions control your reason? I'm telling you, that is an effective way to get people to start thinking about a lot of the stuff that were sold in this, in this modern right. culture. Um, because people say, well, no, I'm not an animal. No, I'm not a slave. And I try to explain respectfully, yeah, but if everything you're about is being able to do whatever you want sexually, you have actually just become a slave. You've made yourself into it. It's a very effective way of talking to people. Yes. Yes.
1: The one group uh, that knows that uh, very well are the the 20-year-olds now who are completely addicted to pornography and masturbation. You don't have to tell them they're slaves. They know they're slaves. And all you have to do is tell them that uh, sexual liberation is a form of political control, and they understand it immediately. And that's the thesis of my book, Libido Dominant.
0: I've actually used the the example of those twenty something year olds that you you mentioned in prior interviews with people, and they've looked at it. But okay, Joe, I'm going to kick it over to you,
2: Doctor Jones. You mentioned Hegel. Um, Joe and I both went to Catholic school, and we had to take two semesters of philosophy, and Hegel is is part of that study. Um, sadly, though, uh, Vico is not discussed. Um, Why is that, is he important? What's his relation to to Hegel? And how did Vico uh, rediscover history? So uh,
1: Vico uh, was in Naples. uh, 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 When he was there, uh, all, everybody was a Cartesian. Okay, Uh, Descartes had simply taken over the philosophical world. Descartes said that there's uh, res cogitans, the thinking subject, there is Res Extensa, which is the universe. And it's hard to say, probably no connection between the two of them. It's a kind of dualism. And he, he was he was convincing because he was also a mathematical genius. And this was a time when the world was starving, really starving for uh, sophisticated mathematics. This was the, so we're leading up to the time of the development of the differential calculus, which came later. But Descartes was very persuasive, and the entire... Uh, elite world of Naples uh, went along with him, and, including Vico. And then at a certain point, Vico started to study uh, Roman jurisprudence. Vico lived in a time where everybody, all you have to do is look around and there are Romans, I'm sorry, remnants of the Roman Empire. So if you're in Naples, you can look up and there's Mount Vesuvius and there's Pompeii, and you can go there and look at, so the and look at the, the frescoes and obviously something better than was what we have now and what happened, and that's what led him to start uh, an understanding of history. Uh, now the precedent had been established by Saint Augustine, who was the first in many ways. The, uh, Dawson calls him the first man to understand time, by which he meant the first man to take issue with Aristotle, who said that time is the number of motion. Uh, uh, That is good if you're a physicist, but that doesn't explain our human perception of time at all, or it doesn't explain how new things come into being, because that time is basically balls going around in circles, which is what the planets are, and nothing ever changes. It's always the same. Well, we know things change, and it was Vico, through his study of um, uh, Roman jurisprudence, who came up with the understanding of the rise and fall of empires? So the, the, he's, the Roman Empire rose, it reached a peak, and then it collapsed. And that's not the end, because then the Holy Roman Empire rose up out of the ashes of the Roman Empire and became something better. And that is sort of, so now we have uh, what we would call a logos of history. So the first part is the history of Logos and Vico. that's the beginning of the second part of the book, which is the beginning of the Logos of history. This is completely antithetical to everything the Greeks understood, okay? Because the Greeks, in order to understand something, it had to be in the realm of forms. And the realm of forms is eternal. And if if it's in the realm of time, you can't understand it. It's because it's always changing. You can't hit a moving target. This is the way the Greeks felt, and now suddenly, there's a man who takes Christianity seriously, takes Augustine seriously, and says basically, well, if there's a logos to space, which you call geometry, why can't there be a logos of time, which would be the, uh, the study of history? And that's the man who introduced that idea, broke, okay, the, the logjam that Descartes had created. Because there's no connection between the mind and the universe in Descartes. Well, obviously there's, because he had lost the concept of Logos. That's because science had replaced Logos. Obviously, Logos is common to both the human mind and the universe. That's why you can have science, because the human mind can apprehend that order simply by studying the universe. Well, this is not Descartes. Descartes is all pure mathematics and then somehow you're going to oppose this Well, that's not, that's not the way it works. That's not the way it works. And Vico is the man who is spo- responsible for that change. Okay? Would you
0: consider that would you consider that uh, would you describe uh, Vico's view of history as the, when you talk about the rise and fall of civilizations, is that also a dialectical movement of, of history or is dialectic <laughs> confined to Hegel?
1: First of all, uh, di- yes, it is dialectic, but he did not use the term dialectic. So the, the, dial- the idea of dialectic didn't come into uh, uh, existence until the time of Fichte, who was the, uh, uh, the, the uh, intellectual uh, godchild of Kant. Okay, and Fichte introduced the idea of the dialectic. Brilliant idea, absolutely brilliant idea. And I think there's a profundity there that still needs to be explored. I think that Hegel, Hegel tried to take the dialectic and complete the idea, and he screwed it up for reasons that I go into, into the book. But basically, that is, that is a, a, a profound idea. And I think it may be uh, giving you an understanding of all of human history, the rise of consciousness, uh, art, and all kinds of other things. So what is the dialectic? Okay, first part, uh, Anzi, to give the German term, there's unconsciousness, there is reality a block of marble, okay? It's real, but there's no meaning. Second part of the dialectic, you have an idea. You have an idea of Moses. Got it from the Bible. This is full of meaning. This idea of Moses is full of meaning, it got all kinds of meaning associated with it, but it's not real. It's an idea in your mind. So what you do is you bring Fr- Anzik and Frisich together. You have Anun Frisich, these are Hegel's terms, which means you've got something that is both real and meaningful, which is to say the statue of Moses that you can see in San Pietro in Vincoli uh, in that church in Rome. That is the dialectic. That's what we're talking about in terms of the dialectic. Fichte brought this up this idea, uh, but it wasn't clear how you could, uh, first of all, to get back to German idealism, it arose from Spinoza, okay, Jewish philosopher from Holland, who was an apostate, the Jews didn't like him, but he was basically a materialist. He said, remember remember Descartes, it's either res extensa or res cogitans. This is the man who set the, the parameters for the debate of modern philosophy, So there's going to be a tension there and they're going to say, okay, everything is one or the other. And so Spinoza was the first to go rise to the bait. And he said, everything is res extensive. Everything is matter. And what you call consciousness is really just little, you know, little balls bumping into each other. That set the stage for the next development of philosophy, which was German idealism where Fichte says, no, that's an intolerable situation. I know what I am. I know there is consciousness. And then he took the next step and he said, well, everything's consciousness. And matter is an illusion. Well, you got two extremes there. And this is where Hegel came along. And he tried to resolve that in the way I resolved it. I just that that the example of the dialectic I gave you is a resolution of those two earlier parts because you end up with something that is both real and meaningful. But how that works out is something that Hegel tried to do. That's what Hegel tried to do. Okay? Now, Hegel ha- was a theology student. He went through a Lutheran seminary. So he's a descendant intellectual descendant of Martin Luther and he's studying theology. He's 19 years old when the French Revolution breaks out. So at this point, he's got two contradictory uh, messages that he's got to resolve. How can I resolve the Enlightenment with Lutheran theology? And the the crucial issue was going to become the Trinity because the Trinity is the dialectic. It seems like the dialectic, doesn't it? I mean, three, this is, so what, what we're saying here is the ultimate reality is three. The ultimate reality of the universe is the dialectic because it's based on the Trinity and the Trinity is a dialectic. It's one, three persons in one God. It's completely uh, immutable and it's in motion all the time because those three persons are in love with each other and there's constant motion of love between those three persons. So it's exactly what we're talking about and it's up to Hegel to come up with it. Well, that's the problem here, okay? Because Hegel had the same problem that Luther had, had trouble controlling his passions. So if you're gonna study the Trinity, it's called contemplation. It's not like figuring out gas deregulation. You have to do some type of spiritual preparation and the best spiritual preparation for studying the trinity is not having sex with your chambermaid which is what hegel was doing okay so the moment the moment of crisis comes napoleon shows up in jena okay there's a battle between the french and the prussians Hegel is scribbling, not the whole phenomenology, but the prolegomena to the phenomenology, and he can hear the canons in the background. This is the world is, is in flux, and at the same time he hears from the chambermaid that she's pregnant and she's going to have a child. Now, the child is the son. Remember, the son is God the Father and God the Son. Is God the Son the negation of God the Father? No, of course not. No, he's the fulfillment in some sense. You're the fulfillment of your father. You're not the negation of your father. But if you're, have, you're an ambitious academic in a kind of puritanical world uh, in terms of morals, and suddenly you've got a, an illegitimate child along the way, this is a threat because it's going to threaten your career. And so as a result, he perceived the second part of the dialectic as the negation of the first part of the dialectic. Now, as soon as you bring negation into the Trinity, you're doing exactly what Luther did by putting evil into God. And as soon as you do that, you've destroyed your whole project. And not only did you destroy your whole project, you have created a machine that functions without God. Because the dialectic now operates all by itself, and the man who understood this was Feuerbach, who was a student, of Hegel, he wrote Hegel a letter and said, "Look, you don't need God for this; it works all by itself." And the man that uh, who was influenced by Feuerbach was Karl Marx, and he came up with the idea of dialectical materialism, and that ruled uh, the world up until 19. Parts of the world certainly up until 19. What do you want to call it? 91 or 89, depending on when you talk about the fall of communism. Mm-hmm.
2: Dr. Jones, uh, in 1879, there was a resurgence of uh, Thomistic philosophy. Who were some of the key figures that uh, that were uh, what's it called that were responsible for that resurgence?
1: Yeah, well, the, the, the German uh, was a priest by the name of Kloetkin. Uh He was familiar with Hegelian philosophy. So Hegelian philosophy, Hegel dies in 1831, and there's a str- he's still dominant. This, these categories that he established like Vernunft and Verstand, two different words for reason, uh, were very powerful in Germany, and there were actually Catholics who thought they were going to explain philosophy by re- recourse to terms like in German idealism, Vernunft, Verstand. It goes nowhere, it has no basis whatsoever in traditional philosophy. And Kloeken understood this, and he understood basically that if we are going to, we're in a bad situation, I'm talking about the time of the revolution of 1848. The church, the papacy has just been robbed of its property. The revolutionaries are trampling up all over, up and down Italy. Uh, Pope Pius IX is on the throne. He issues his uh, um, uh, syllabus of errors an attack on modernism. Uh, and they realize they have got to do something. So they create the, the uh, magazine, CIVILTA CATTOLICA which is supposed to combat revolution in Europe at this time, in the wake of the revolution of 1848. And one of the collaborators on Cibota Cattolica, along with Cloyckin, was the man who eventually became Pope Leo XIII. And both Leo XIII and Cloykin realized all of these people, they were all Thomists, and they realized the only sound basis for, uh, we have to have a metaphysical foundation for what we're doing, and it's in Thomism, and so they brought about the resurrection of Thomism. And the culmination of that was 1879, when Leo XIII, who is now obviously Pope, uh, issues a Patris. Now this had a liberating effect on the Catholic Church, because now the Catholic Church had a firm metaphysical foundation, and they could move forward, uh, and they could uh, pose an effective counterforce to all the modernist ideas. And one of the first places where it took really deep root was in France. Uh, among the Dominicans, Gary Goulogrange uh, was one of these Dominicans. They're in Paris at the time. He met a young student of Bergson. Now, Bergson is the opposite of Thomism, Thomism's metaphysical foundation. Bergson is like uh, a modern version of Heraclitus everything is flux. Pantharay, and one of his best students was a, another Frenchman by the name of Jacques Maritain. And at this point, Gary Goulagrange and Maritain link up. Maritain becomes a Thomist, abandons Bergsonism, and the two of them create this powerhouse of Logos in France uh, based on Thomism, not just, uh, not just, um, not, not just the two of them, but you had A.T. and Gilson, you have a lot of people. And this is the, uh, basically now you have the Catholic Church on a firm foundation, you got the French Thomists who are working through these ideas, and it's a powerful force in human history, very powerful force, at a time when the West is going through a crisis, and the crisis I'm talking about is World War I, where basically the West uh, attacked itself and committed suicide. That's the that that takes us to logos in the into the twentieth century
2: I mean sadly, I think the study of philosophy in America is collapsing why why would you say that i mean it's not like why is that rather like like sadly, even in Catholic schools, it's not emphasized um it's It seems very clear to me that it's the foundational approach to all things why do you think that is well for you're right
1: because you can be pushed around if you don't have your feet firmly planted in ultimate reality, and we're seeing this right now. Classic example is the Catholic Church and the COVID virus. Okay, the Catholic Church has basically capitulated its claim to be in contact with ultimate reality. We're, we're saying, oh, the scientists know. We have to do what the scientists say. Well, what, what is, what are the scientists saying? They're contradicting each other. Well, when the scientists contradict each other, we have to use logos, we have to use judgment to say which one is right and which one is wrong. So we're back at the same, uh, back, back at square one, okay? Uh, now, to talk about the philosophical, yeah, we need philosophy, uh, it did collapse. And I talk about the collapse of philosophy in America. So when Mar- Maritain and Gilson felt that Europe was like Constantinople after the fall, Uh, afterwards overrun by the Turks. And their job was to get the sacred texts out of Constantinople to Western Europe, which meant from Western Europe to America. Now, America had no philosophical tradition because it was a Protestant country, and there's no such thing as Protestant philosophy. It's a contradiction in terms because Luther said reason was a whore, and every Protestant in some way or other is tainted by Luther, one way or the other, even if they react against him. And they all are basically uh, devotees one way or the other of sola scriptura, which means it's just scripture and that's that, okay? And at this point you would have the enlightenment had taken it over and so that was a different uh, trend and there was no reconciliation. So you had a place like the University of Chicago and the best they could do was pragmatism, uh, which was the American philosophy at the time. John Dewey was the uh, the guru of pragmatism. And it was it, the classic American phenomenon. It's like the Susquehanna River. It's a mile wide and it's 18 inches deep. <laughs> and that that's America in a nutshell. And the head of uh, the University of Chicago recognized this. Uh, Mr. Hutchins uh, was a Northern Baptist and his friend was Mortimer Adler who... Em- he was a Jew, and they were both Thomists. Neither one was a Catholic, but both of them were Thomists. And they said, we need the depth that Thomism can provide, so we're going to bring these people over. It wasn't just the University of Chicago. Harvard invited ATN Gilson to give a series of lectures in the 1930s because they knew they didn't have it. They, uh, the same thing with the University of Chicago. So they bring them in, and of course, this outrages the Americans, the, the brainless American pragmatists, and they're they are they're like the dogs that bark at what they don't understand. That's what Heraclitus said. Dogs bark at what they don't understand. And so people like Louis Wirth at the University of Chicago, the, the, the man, the social engineer who was responsible for the ethnic cleansing of all of the Catholic neighborhoods on the south side of Chicago, organized opposition, and basically, uh, Maritan simply did not make it to the faculty of the law school at the University of Chicago, in spite of their efforts. So at this point he's pretty much, he's kind of famous, and Notre Dame picks up uh, Maritain. Now Maritain doesn't go to teach there, he ends up going to Princeton, but they established the uh, Medieval Institute, which is based on his ideas, and also the uh, Maritain Society, uh, Maritain Institute uh, at Notre Dame. Now at this point We have already had the collapse of scientism, if you want to talk about that, the metaphysical basis, which is materialism, which is that the little ball called the atom is the ultimate reality. That collapsed during the 1920s. It collapsed definitively in 1931 when Werner Heisenberg was given the Nobel Prize for quantum physics. There is no atom. There is something that, atom means something you can't split. That means ultimate reality. That means you can't get any, well, you can get smaller than that. And you can split the atom and you can split it so smaller and smaller and suddenly it disappears into energy. And that energy can, is known as the atomic bomb. And that's what Heisenberg was working on uh, at the same time there, where the Americans were working on it in the Manhattan Project. Okay, so Notre Dame now is now faced with the fact that science is an ideology that is very powerful in the United States, and the United States government is committed to spending money on science if you can convince them that you're a scientist, and so they, they basically strangle Thomism in its cradle in the New World at Notre Dame University. After Notre Dame University in 1953, officially adopted Eterni Patris as the official uh, philosophy of the Notre Dame Philosophy Department. They got a physicist, an Irish priest by the name of Ernan McMullen. Uh, he came over, he became chairman of the Philosophy Department. He had worked with uh, Erwin Schrödinger in the 1950s in Dublin. And between Hesburgh and uh and McMullen, Theodore Hesburgh, president of the University of Notre Dame, they strangled Logos in its cradle at a Catholic institution and put this obsolete ideology of science in its place. And they wrecked philosophy at Notre Dame. And that's why your philosophy course sucked.
0: Okay. <laughs> <laughs> You did see recently, Dr. Jones, that um, there there are a group of uh, faithful Catholics that are calling on Notre Dame to take the name of Our Lady off the school because they recently hired your beloved mayor. I think, right.
1: I, think that, I think that's now. actually a good idea. I think they should call it Buddhaish University. Well, they <laughs> had the
0: father and the son, but- right? You
1: could call it but You could have a statue, father and son, Joe Buddhaish and Pete Buddhaish tear down that statue of Hesburgh and Father Joyce and put that statue in this place. It would fit in exactly with the spirit of the times right now. I'm in favor of renaming Notre Dame, Buddhist university.
0: All right, <laughs> Dr. Jones, we're going to, we're going to leave
2: it there. We kept you over an hour, unless Joe, did you have anything else? I just have one more question. I mean, clearly we're talking about the benefits of Logos. Um, we're also talking about some of the consequences of not, uh, basically incorporating that idea into society. How do we bring it back? How do we um, communicate this message properly? How does this permeate our society again so it could flourish?
1: Yes. Well, first of all, by doing what we're doing right now, okay, we have to talk about this. If you're interested in the cutting edge of Logos in our day, it's this book, I'm not joking. I'm not joking because the man who fought in the last ditch at Notre Dame was Ralph McInerney. And I go into a long story about in that book at the end of the book about how Ralph McInerney put the mantle on my shoulder. Okay. So we're doing what we're doing. Uh, This is the vehicle for Logos right now. Okay. So buy the book and read it. But the point the, the, the point I'm trying to make here is that Logos doesn't need you. Logos wants you, but it doesn't need you, and Logos is rising. What I'm trying to say here is that force in human history has God behind it, okay? So even at a moment like Notre Dame where they strangled, they thought they strangled Logos in the cradle, it, it, it moved on. You cannot suppress Logos, because that means you're suppressing God, because Logos is God. That's what St. John told us. Mm-hmm. And if you could suppress God, then you'd be God. Well, I, I'm, I hate to break this to you, but you're not God. Thank God.
2: God, <laughs> is, God is,
1: <laughs> and God is, mm-hmm. Logos is rising. You're not going to stop it. You're not going to stop it. If you could. And, and the, the irony, the paradox is that it rises fastest when it looks as if it's in its weakest moment. Mm-hmm. And that goes back to the to the crucifixion. The, the Jews thought they ended this discussion. They're, they're no different than today. They ban you from Facebook. They ban you. They banned me from Amazon. They banned me from from uh, um, uh, YouTube. YouTube. Well, that's what they tried to do with Jesus Christ. You're in good company. They threw Isaiah and
2: Jeremiah out of the temple too.
1: <laughs> they, they, they expelled St. Paul from the synagogues. They said, we're not going to allow him to speak in the synagogue anymore. We're not going to allow him on either Facebook or YouTube or Amazon. I mean, this is really serious. And what did they do? They, by that action, they spread the gospel to the Greeks. So that's what I mean by Logos rising. You know, you, could take, you can take me off Amazon, but you're not going to stop Logos from rising.
0: I think one of the main things that, uh, and we'll leave it there, but one of the main things is uh, Joe and I try to emphasize on the show all the time is that that part of logos, which is defined as speech, is one of the, if not the most important thing we could do right now, as you said, to not be afraid, to speak the truth, speak it boldly, and then the consequences be damned. Look. If, if, if God wasn't in control of your life, you, you wouldn't be where you are now, but you had to get fired from St. Mary's in order for that to happen. Joe right. and I tell ourselves all the time, Dr. Jones, we could lose our job. We're working men. Dr. Jones, Joe works in a bank. I, you know, I work in the hospitality industry. We're working men. We both have to put food on the table. We both could lose our jobs. But if we don't at least accept that, that we need to speak up, okay, um, then like you said, Logos eventually will rise and Logos eventually will win. But we still have to fight in the meantime. We still have to fight this culture war in the meantime. And that's what we're trying to do. And uh, we really, really appreciate you coming on the show. Dr. Jones, tell everybody where they can find your book and also Culture Wars magazine.
1: So you can go to uh, fidelitypress.org or culturewars.com. We have to establish secure channels of communication. We cannot rely on YouTube or any of these things. They can be turned off like that. We have to establish if you buy a book from us or you subscribe to Culture Wars magazine, you will have a secure channel of communication where we can continue this conversation no
0: matter what they do. Excellent. Dr. Jones, hopefully you'll come back on the show. We want to talk to you more, some specifics. Maybe it's uh, Joe and I are both from Newark, New Jersey. So slaughter of cities is, uh, is your next book that I want to read because that speaks to, our experience and the destruction of what once was a great city and talk a little bit more in general about Americanism. So hopefully we'll set something up with you and we can, we could have that conversation in the meantime, Logos rising. Okay. If okay. a guy like me, a jamoke like me could take this book down in a week, it's 800 pages. You can too. And it's a great, great, great read. And Dr. Jones, thank you again for joining us. And remember all you good people out there uh, to follow Joe and I on Facebook and YouTube, while we're still on there um, at the front line with Joe and Joe on both, like, subscribe, share. Please share this video. Share this video with all your friends and buy Logos Rising. And remember that our conversation is your conversation and that conversation that's going on everywhere. We'll see you next time.